The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Hello and welcome to Root of the Rot on the Restoration Radio Network. My name is Stephen Heiner and I'm joined as always by our guest for this program, His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. Your Excellency, it's great to have you with us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure as always, Stephen. We've got a lot to get into, but before we do any of that, I'll, I'll let you lead us in a prayer. Thank you very much. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. O God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secret is hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inpouring of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily praise thee, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you, Your Excellency. You're welcome. So, Your Your Excellency, this is the French Revolution Part 2. And it was such a massive event. We talked in the last episode that 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 episode might be the most important episode we've done so far. And not to denigrate the importance of this episode, but this is what happens next. Once the French Revolution has happened, this disaster, this, this catastrophe, mm-hmm. we are left with the, the modern world in, in a way. It's just been the explosions have kept going over time and we are still dealing with, with the aftershocks of it. And there's a lot for us to cover. Um, and I wanted to know whether you wanted to start by talking about Napoleon and his spread of these ideas or the time after Napoleon. Well, let's, um, let's start with Napoleon because, <clears throat> in a sense, <clears throat> I think we could say that Napoleon is actually the most important part of the French Revolution. That is to say, of course, you have to have the ideas, the revolutionary ideas, those wretched ideas that are still with us today. But how are you going to go from the, the, the fire, the, the bloodshed, the disaster, the, literally the, the smoking ruins of um, French monarchical Catholic society into this brave new world, uh, except by a man like Napoleon? He was a brilliant military strategist. He was perhaps uh, certainly the most important figure of his age, uh, but his real and la- his enduring and lasting importance is that he's the one who took the ideas of the French Revolution and made them work. He made them practical. I think of two things in his connection. The first of these is that um, uh, the 
Just yesterday, we're recording the show on October 23rd, and just yesterday, on October 22nd, the Novus Ordo kept their first feast day, I gag at the words, of St. John Paul the Great. Um, he was the Napoleon of the Vatican II Revolution. He, like Napoleon, took these revolutionary ideas and made them into a system. Uh, it's interesting, the Novus or Novus Ordo Church today is back at the French Revolution. That is to say, all is just blood and gore and, and attacks and destruction. But somebody has to come along, and somebody will, I'm sure of it, to institutionalize these this further degradation of what's left of institutional Christianity. The other the other picture I have in mind as we begin today, Stephen, is a, that picture of um, the, the famous photograph of Hitler when he was making his victory tour of Paris, visiting the tomb of Napoleon and standing, pausing with respect. The two of them truly were well-matched, except that Napoleon's... <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> Kindred spirits. Kindred spirits, quite. Except that, except that Napoleon, the, <laughs> the French can be proud of this at least, Napoleon won. Napoleon's ideas are still firmly in place today, not only in France, but in a sense throughout the world. You have the Napoleonic Code, for example, in Louisiana, the state of Louisiana, still today. Uh, whereas as the ideas of the Third Reich uh, and that particular form of national socialism, which we'll look at uh, later on in today's presentation, that's, uh, that's pretty much uh, died out. That's died out. But whereas Napoleon, he may have been, he may have died in exile, but he's the victor today. He can, from wherever he is, I hope he's not in hell, he can, he can laugh that uh, he had the victory over everybody else. How did he do it? Well, he, he did it by institutionalizing, as I say, the revolution. So um, he didn't just conquer uh, much, of, uh, much of Europe uh, in, in a series of wars in, in order to maybe promote the glory of France, a narrowly nationalistic uh, view. No, he um, wanted to make France the, the, the center of a great federal empire, and he wanted... The, the, the light of its, of its of its new enlightenment ideals should shine over over all of Europe, and so by this means he would destroy <clears throat> what was left of Christendom. That is to say, what what they would refer to as feudalism, the the the, the feudal or the medieval uh, well organized society, certainly clericalism, and all of the traditions, anything that that um, went uh, went against their concept of. Uh, of uh, reason and their concept of uh, equality. And the point is this, although that Napoleon was indeed defeated by Waterloo and all the, uh, at Waterloo and, and all of the rest, nevertheless, he set in motion um, a movement which would, in effect, destroy Christendom, the Christendom of Constantine and the Christendom of Charlemagne and the Christendom of St. Louis, the King of France, that would all be gone. And this he would do by a series, not only of military conquests, but also uh, uh, in brilliant strategies, but also by um, a firm organization. He would set up uh, native satellite governments. He would choose men, m many of them from the lodges, of course, who would um, who would collaborate with the French and who would buy into all of these new ideas. They would they would in turn. Um, uh, draft uh, constitutions and laws that would uh, specify the carrying out of the ideas of the French Revolution. Uh, that's how Napoleon 
finally won, and that's how the revolution uh, got out after the initial bloodshed and fires were were, were finished. Um, I, I use the word, um, Stephen, I, I use the word feudal, and probably when American ears hear the word feudal, we're meant to cringe and it would be oh, akin to the word or the phrase, the Dark Ages, uh, because they, they, want to, they, they want to make us to believe that, um, well, they promoted the legal uh, equality of all persons. But what they truly did was to give the government a complete, untrammeled, unquestioned authority over each individual subject and all of the carefully defined rights and obligations of Christendom, of medieval society. They were all trodden underfoot. It it was uh, Napoleon who who set the stage up for the all-powerful central government, which you see very much in France, and you see it very much in the United States today. So... Under under the claim of of, of legally um, equal individuals, you have the only right that you enjoy today, which is that of being utterly and totally subject to the central government. Well, yes, and we've been tracing throughout this entire series this overthrow of the Christian order. And we look at the Christian order, be it in the year 800 or in the year 1200, not as this big brother government as if the king has time to supervise what's going on in a particular county, yes. whereas Napoleon has all the time in the world uh, to directly supervise and, and micromanage. And as you say, the, the legacy is still with us. Unfortunately, for those of us who have to deal with the French bureaucracy and the immigration paperwork, uh, it is quite clear that Napoleon's legacy is is uh, alive and well. Very much in place, very much in place in the Catholic the true Catholic social principle of subsidiarity, that things should be handled at the lowest possible level, <clears throat> and in, excuse me, and in the simplest possible way, that's, uh, that's buried. That's, that's buried under a mountain of paperwork. And people seem comfortable to live in and to do business that way. Um, I think one of the reasons why the Church had to go, Stephen, is, is that the church is, the church is the defender of the poor. She always has been the defender of the underdog. The church is the one who promotes rights. The church is the one who protects. Um, they 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 want to give us a, a picture of the church as oppressive and and the uh, the Inquisition and uh, all of the rest. But their 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 work, the work of the Napoleonic conquests and the and the and the rewriting of the map of Europe, the rewriting of the laws of Europe. Uh, all of this was in order to destroy the Catholic Church as the advocate of the poor and uh, a voice against well, what would be, in effect, a new religion, which would be the religion of uh, of uh, the, the Republic and, and the strong central government, the re- religion of government, governmentism, you might say. So the uh, church property was confiscated. The monastic orders were um, either dissolved entirely or driven out or else very, very much uh, regulated. And... Um, in the Catholic countries, toleration became the law, and then eventually full rights became the law for Jews and for Protestants and for unbelievers. The so-called freedom of the press was um, also imposed. Um, and Napoleon would compromise on some things. He would compromise, for example, on um, economic matters. He compromised on the question of the uh, aristocracy. But, <clears throat> but he would absolutely refused to compromise ever on on the question of the clergy uh, or, or the question of the principle of having a secular state that's his legacy isn't it it's the secular state but that's a that's a misnomer i think that we would hold that uh, the 
there's always a religion, and the religion today is a religion of secularism, and it's a religion of statism, perhaps most of all. Maybe you could reduce it to that. Today's religion is twofold. Don't be offended. Statism and sports, those two. <laughs> and I suppose if you get enough statism, you, you'd, be, you'd be sort of driven to the soccer stadium on the weekend or something just for a little relaxation. I don't know. Well, but they're not... got statism plus sports equals the World Cup, Your Excellency. I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. And I'm afraid that the cup of God runneth over with, with wrath. Because of that, because no one is uh, no one is running into church for the worship of God anymore. So that's that's. that's go ahead. Yes. Your, your Excellency, people are going to now use this as an opportunity to attack the church vis-a-vis the concordat with Hitler, the concordat with Mussolini, and the concordat with uh, Napoleon. That the mm-hmm. church was part of the problem, right? You know, the, the church compromised with the Nazis because they had a concordat. The, the church compromised with Mussolini because they had a concordat. So can you contextualize concordats in general, obviously looking ahead to those ones in World War II, but looking back at this concordat with Napoleon, good for the church, bad for the church, why did the church do it? A concordat that comes, you you see the English word concord or peaceful agreement, a peaceful way of life in the the word concordat. Concordat is is an agreement that's struck between the Pope and the... Uh, ruler or rulers of a particular country in which the again the mutual rights and obligations would be um, would be outlined mm, that 's the definition of a concordat the concordat of the struck between uh, Pius the seventh and Napoleon in uh, eighteen o one uh, was the first of many many modern concordats it 's the beginning of the church putting her 100% confidence in her her diplomatic abilities and saying, well, this is a bad situation. We feel that this is the best that we can do in this situation for the glory of God and for the salvation of souls. The difficulty is that um, I think, with hindsight, it may be possible to maintain that many of these many of these concordats depended too much upon human diplomacy and a certain naive naivete at the very least on the part of church authorities not excluding the pope when it came to secular politics uh, and and uh, not enough trust in almighty god so this the, the question of the concordats and we'll talk about the specifics in a moment but keep this in mind as we're talking about it. It's um, how should we how how should we act? How should we do? Would it be better for us to compromise and uh, look the other way and keep the churches open and have catechism classes and have masses again and sacraments and be able to preach? Uh, in a trammeled way, not freely entirely, but at least be able to keep up the business of the church somehow? Or should we stand our ground? Should we condemn the evil as we see it? And should we realize that in God's plan, persecution is not the end of the story. Persecution is just the pruning of the vine so that the fruit may be more abundant. The church, in her real politic, definitely from 1801 until until the, the, the Novus Ordo era, the church has always favored the idea of a diplomatic solution, compromise, anything to avoid persecution. Basically, you could say, I think, fairly, go along to get along. 
Has that been a good policy? I think it could be questioned, especially today, as we sit in the midst of the ruins of Jerusalem, and we survey what they, what, what's left of the Catholic Church, and we see the, the smoldering ash and all the blood that's been shed. Um, I'm, uh, I'm thinking of an author, the centenary of whose death is... Uh, it's just, it's just been marked in, uh, in October of this year. Robert U. Benson, in that celebrated novel of his, The uh, Lord of the World, if our readers, have, if our listeners have never, have never read this book, read it. It's a wonderful read, and it's utterly prophetic. And, and he and the, <clears throat> the Pope figure talks about uh, the coming of, of persecution as inevitable and as not a bad thing. And if, certainly if you looked at, if you spoke to the, the great saints of the era of persecution, whether it be our North American martyrs with the, uh, the savage Indians, or whether it be in England, or <clears throat> the first three centuries, the Diocletians and the, and the, and the Neros, um, the church flourished because, as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So that's uh, maybe a little bit of a background, and that's... As they say, read and discuss. Think about this. Think about this a little bit. But um, the, the reality is that the Church always chose, in modern times, uh, the past two centuries, has always chosen the diplomatic approach. So the Holy Father, Pius VII, who was himself um, a gentle, peace-loving man, he was a, he had been a Benedictine monk and um, was more than willing, in, in the measure possible, we, as he felt it, to uh, compromise with the uh, with the revolution. Um, so, for example, um, he uh, when the revolution came to, to the city where he was um, Bishop Imola in Italy, he uh, willingly and right away removed uh, the throne, excuse not the throne, but the, the canopy from over his throne, just as Paul VI would issue an instruction that that be done as a result of Vatican II. And he also gave a, a Christmas uh, sermon in which he, as much as possible, praised uh, and uh, idealized sort of a Catholic interpretation of the um, principles of the French Revolution. And you know, that, was, that was sort of easy listening for the Freemasons and for the revolutionaries. Well, uh, he wanted very much to see uh, to see uh, some sort of a compromise in place so that Catholicism could come come back to France, and Napoleon wanted that too because he saw he couldn't make it happen. He couldn't put. Remember, he's the restorer. He wants to put things together and get everything working again. He couldn't do that without uh, the aid of the Church, without her tremendous influence, uh, the, the influence of religion on the common people, um, the influence of, of religion and society as, as the binding force for stability. That just couldn't happen. So they both had an interest in mind, and um, they went back and forth, and uh, they, they, they struck a deal. It's interesting that uh, at some point uh, the Pope, under terrific personal pressure from Napoleon, signed on to a little bit too much, and then and uh, next day he regretted it, and he he withdrew his signature just as years later Archbishop Lefebvre would do that with Ratzinger in Rome. Um, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, I guess a moment I guess, or, would, you, would we call that a French maneuver, Your Excellency, withdrawing your signature? It's uh... Would yeah, be repeated I'm not, here. 
I, I, yeah, I'm not actually familiar with the concept, except that it's happened twice. I didn't know how that can work. If you sign something, you sign something. But what do I know? I'm just an American. <laughs> well, this is before whiteout was invented. You know, in, indeed, yes, unfortunately. But he indeed withdrew his uh, and drew, he he withdrew his signature. So then finally, they made they made some sort of a deal. But I think if you're talking about contextualizing the the concordat, you have to say, well. In that, yes, it was quite new because they gave up the, the right to all of their property, and they accepted in exchange for all of the property now being owned not by the church but by the the, the secular church, the state, uh, that they would uh, re- the clergy would receive their salaries from the state. But he who gives out the money, he calls the tune too. Of course, he, he the one it's the one who signs your paycheck after all. And so the state now had to not only agree to the naming of bishops, which Leo X had already done, you might say in a sense giving away the store, of all things, uh, to Francis I in 1516. Uh, but more than that, not only is, is the state going to now name the bishops with the, the Catholic Church just reserving the power to approve or disapprove of the one of the man that the state wants to put into a see, but now the state has a right as well to look over the pastors of parishes. Wow. So it's a totally, Pius VII set up a structure that would allow the French state totally to control the the, the church in France. And there'll be all sorts of grief and problem, and as we'll see, of divisions too, which came of this really unfortunate practical arrangement. Um, I think of uh, the the Freemasonic revolutions in Mexico, same thing, the church seized, the the church's property was seized by the government, and um, and in, in effect, the church was entirely subject to to the government. That's a French idea. That's a French idea. It's a Freemasonic idea that that the church has no right to own property. Uh, Saint that we, um, one of the greatest popes of all time, Saint Callistus, whose feast we kept earlier this month of October. He was the first one in already the um, uh, uh, the 200s to vindicate the church's right to own property. He 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 not only cemeteries, but even uh, secular buildings, uh, he, a tavern actually, which uh, which he bought and converted into a church in honor of Our Lady. Um, and it was a, an established principle, even in the Roman Empire, that, okay, now the church has a right to exist. But when you give up the right to own property, do you have the right to exist? Well, no, just at the, just at the good pleasure of the, of the local government. Well, uh, I think that we could probably, all agree that um, at the very least, it was. Um, uh, it seemed to the Pope to be the most prudent thing that he needed to do. But in hindsight, this concordat was a disaster for not only the, the French Church but for the universal, for the uh, for the Catholic Church. It was it was a terrible thing that that this should have been done. And there, and it's interesting to note there were some French. Especially imbued as they are with the um, the Gallican principles of opposition, 
uh, the spirit of French ecclesiastical independence and opposition to the power of the Pope and of Rome, minimizing it as much as possible. There were some French who just wouldn't accept it. And they they became what's known as a little church, a petite église, which still exists today, curiously and interestingly enough. Uh, and that's a little bit of that tradition that so much of your R&R, and that does not stand for um, Restoration Radio, that stands for Recognize and Resist. That movement uh, uh, draws its inspiration from it, sort of in, in, a bit in, in a line with. So there actually was a petite église that went into schism because they refused to accept the the revolution that had now been institutionalized by Napoleon and blessed, in a sense, as the best that the Church could do at this moment by the Holy Father, by Pope Pius VII. It's interesting, Your Excellency, you say we're still living with the effects of it. I was uh, talking with, with Father Legal, who's who's my pastor here in, in Paris, and it was around Epiphany, and I was asking about Holy Days of Obligation, and he, he mentioned, well, that's been, that was suppressed. Um, this was one of the Holy Days of obligation that was suppressed by Napoleon and, and that the, the French used to have 10 and it was reduced yes. to six. And again, we think about back to what you're saying, this is Napoleon arbitrarily deciding, okay, I'm going to just see how far I can push the church. And of course, as you're saying, a practical deal, the Holy Father can look at this and say, okay, we're going to lose four holy days of obligation. Is this, are we going to die on this hill or not? And you're, you're talking about that human diplomacy. Whereas yeah, we might say, yeah. look, holy days of obligation are pretty important, and if they're part of the secular sphere, that means everyone else has to take them off too and recognize that this is part of the Christian faith. And when you reduce that footprint from 10 to 6, you are inevitably just uh, eroding the, the Christian the, the Christian sense of things. And we still have some of those that, that uh, from the Concordat of 1801 are still honored by, quote-unquote, honored, by the Fifth uh, French Republic, the, the the disgusting form of government they have in present-day France. But mm-hmm. um, as you say, uh, this is the church, in a way, getting cornered, right, by by the and, strong man in the room. Yeah, I I think that you really have to say that since we're talking about the root of the rot here, Stephen, as and as and as we connect it back, we look at. Uh, Leo X, who in some respects was a great pope, although probably not that not that holy uh, and, and worthy of an individual personally, um, but he gave away the store to Francis I. And then <clears throat> there are other popes during the, the, the so-called Age of the, of the Enlightenment. One of the movements, in talking about holy days, was to for the universal church to reduce the number of holy days. We had uh, not only ten, but we had a zillion holy days. That goes back to the medieval idea of a, of a proper balance, because everything in Christendom is properly balanced. And so there were all these feast days in which you were obliged to hear Mass, abstain from servile work, and then there were other feast days in which you were obliged just at least to um, just at least to, to, to hear Mass in the morning, and then the uh, some of the other obligations during the day were, were a little bit lessened. But uh, before the French Revolution, uh, many of these were abolished and then reduced to the title that you may have heard. The term is Feasts of Devotion. For example, the Feast Days of the Apostles. I remember reading the life of Bishop Schalliner, who's one of the great <coughs> vicars apostolic of England, uh, just at, uh, around the time of the French Revolution or slightly before, um, commenting to his people that, well, unfortunately, now Rome has abolished all these holy days, re- reduced them to just a, a relatively small number. Perhaps it was six, perhaps it was ten. 
But nevertheless, we should, he told the people, we should still, and this is a persecution, mind you, the Gordon riots, and we must still do our best to hear Mass on these days and to keep the spirit of these, of these feasts that are now at least uh, feasts of devotion. So you have the Church retrenching, retrenching, retrenching. You have the Church, the Church leaders, compromising, compromising, compromising with the spirit. And with what? With the spirit of the world, the spirit of the modern age, with the so-called signs of the times. What has that ever gotten us? What, except it's made us smaller and smaller and has put us in the corner. Too much human reasoning, I'm thinking, if you want to talk about the root of the rot, and not enough, not enough sort of viva Cristo Rey, not enough uh, muscular Catholicism here, but our 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 duty is 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 at least to in this in this show to on uh, this series to um, to trace the root of the rot, and this 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 spirit of go along to get along of, of a kind of a worldly diplomacy is um, uh, is certainly a major player. If you ask the question, how did it happen? Uh, another another important point to make here. Um, is uh, I think the historical perspective that this series uh, I hope will give to our to our audience. That is to say, recall that this happened even in the Middle Ages with that French king Philip the Fair, his attack upon the Pope, uh, and the false principles of laicism and of nominalism. So we're talking not only France here, but um, Scotland and uh, in, and um, uh, Italy <clears throat> and Germany. Uh, all of whom made a contribution to the to this revolution that sort of that takes you finally to the institutionalizing of of the French Revolution. That um, one of the st- distinctions that one could make would be with the other kings with whom the Church, in her prudence, decided to compromise. You were dealing with those who were at least officially or on the outside or externally Catholic monarchs, crowned, consecrated Catholic monarchs. With Napoleon, you were dealing with a man who was more of a Nero than than any sort of a Catholic monarch, and who was essentially a pagan because he was essentially a Freemason. Uh, and you, you see that in the whole um, in the whole drama of the. Um, uh, coronation of Napoleon. So there's the Pope. He accepts the invitation to uh, to go and to crown the uh, the, the, the new emperor. Um, and once again, meekly sort of hoping for the best out of this particular situation. There's no question the Pope is told and his ministers of having a Catholic coronation ceremony in Mass. No, no, that there'll be a, there'll be a ceremony and. Uh, but we're going to write it out. It was sort of a novus. Interesting, it's sort of like a novus ordo uh, coronation ceremony for an emperor, and then even those rubrics at the end were not followed. And at the last minute, uh, Napoleon seizes the crown from the Holy Father. How symbolic! And he plops it right on his own plunky head. He declares and crowns himself the king. That's the spirit. That's the spirit of modern man who refuses to submit himself to Christ the King. And this, just a foot or two away from the humiliated vicar of Jesus Christ, the Pope, who, impotent, is seated upon his throne. Nothing he can say here and nothing that he can do. That's the modern revolution, Stephen. I think, think um, who's the artist? Is that David? Jacques, Jacques, Jacques-Louis David. Okay, David, it's David, yes, it's David. It's seized in David's moment. Uh, look at the expression on, on the Pope's face. 
look at the look at the the scene, and it's um it's it's a it's a picture before whom we could before which we could we could we could well pause and just sort of contemplate the the, the sad reality of the Pope has been reduced to a figurehead. That's what they want. And the king and the high priest, that's Napoleon now. It, it, I have a couple of reflection points there, Your Excellency. Mm-hmm. One is part of our purpose in this program is to try to give people a deep view. You know, when we have Vatican II, we have this recent disgusting synod that just happened. People yes. keep looking at, mm-hmm. at those things as events in isolation. And they don't connect the dots and say, well, no, there was, there was, look, there's a reason Vatican II happened. And part of this series is illustrating, yes, look at all of the, the, the paths that were paved in order to make this easy. And part of that would be some of the, the spirit and the implementation of some of those concordats. The second is, as you were describing that scene, I taken back to that, that, that huge painting, which is the second largest painting in the Louvre. The largest is the Wedding Feast of Cana. Ah, yes, yes. And, um, which is very funny that that one uh, in its own, it's this, uh, uh, wedding feast of Cana in a Venetian courtyard painted for, uh, Franciscans. That's, that's, that's another story, but, uh, that's for another show, but an interesting point. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, David, David took three years to paint that painting. And uh, yes, you can see Python seven. He looks quite sad. Uh, David also did a separate, our best portrait of Pi, of Pi VII comes from David. You yeah, can see yeah, his yeah. hand is just forward in a slight yeah. blessing. That's all he's here yeah. for. He's just here to bless Napoleon. And right. Napoleon himself, as the rewriter of history, had David paint his mother into that painting because his mother was in Rome because she didn't approve of this empire. She didn't approve of Josephine being crowned empress without having delivered an heir, etc., and this is Napoleon. He is the modern man. He is the self-created. Uh, he, you know, this before the internet. You know, the internet where you can go back and change your your blog entry to be correct, and nobody ever knew it was wrong. And Napoleon can create this painting, instruct David, make sure my mother is in this painting, even though she didn't come. And or so or the, the communists truth. with their with their early attempts at photoshopping and <laughs> right. putting people in, in the Politburo in the painting or out of the painting depending <laughs> right. on their their status. The yes, he, is you're no right. longer there. Yeah, he, he anticipated all of just something. Remember, just a hat at some point, just a hat showed up in the picture. Yeah, he anticipated all of this. Um, the use of the plastic arts as uh, as propaganda, uh, and and brilliantly so. That's that's yet what is that? That's yet another reason that he's the he, this pagan. Uh, high priest and pagan ruler uh, succeeded where Julian the Apostate failed. Napoleon the Apostate was brilliantly successful. He used and used well all of these means. And before him, the church was silent. Before him, the church was impotent. Uh, so the, the and and that happened, as I say, and we I don't think we could stress it too much. Was because of a certain um, naivete about the nature of the revolution, the nature of. Um, Freemasonry and uh, the failure of the church to to see that uh, this is now a new age and an age of revived paganism and, and worse of anti Christianity, which would ultimately will ultimately produce the final um, the final Antichrist. So you you have it you have the church sort of set up for, and you see this in, in American history too. Uh, less than French in French history, you see the church set up for uh, the opposition of the liberals versus the Catholics, or the anti-liberals. Whereas in the United States, while you have that same conflict in the 19th century, 
I think you can say that almost all the way through by means of a certain gentleman's agreement with a few exceptions, just a few German or Irish bishops, whoever would speak about these things would be uh, ostracized and isolated. It simply was not done. So the idea is to go along, to get along. And that's the spirit of the Concordat. That's the spirit of, uh, of the reaction of the Catholic Church, more or less, even though sometimes there'll be in the most vehement objections, the letter of... Um, uh, we'll see later on uh, the, the letter of uh, the same Pope, Pius VII, to the Bishop of Troyes during the restoration of Louis XVIII, uh, objecting very bitterly to him. And then, of course, all the writings of Pope Pius IX, objecting to all the Masonic and condemning all the Masonic ideals. They will be condemned, but on the on the practical level, in, uh, in, in a diocese, a national hierarchy, or a parish, would it be preached against and condemned? No, probably not. Probably not. What 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 you're set up for is that the church has now, in effect, by by means of the concordat, the church is now functioning. Sacraments are being given, as I say, confirmation, catechism. All these things are available. Once again, marriages are being blessed, and Catholic social life, family life is 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 slowly returning, not to what it was before, but returning to something, some vision of, of Christendom. But you you're you're left with this bitter bitter heritage. What's that? That the uh, that the uh, the church would now be divided into two camps: the the camp of liberal Catholicism, those who wanted to see an accommodation of the Catholic Church with the so-called new civilization, principles of the revolution, and then those who, those who truly Catholic realize it's impossible for the Church to accommodate herself to this new Freemasonic or revolutionary thinking, and that it needs to be condemned forthrightly and frequently. So uh, amongst the liberals will be all those French names, uh, Monsignor Dupendu and uh, Lamnay and Lacardaire and Montalembert. Um, and then in the United States, you have characters like Archbishop Ireland, Bishop England of uh, Charleston, North Carolina, the celebrated Father Isaac Hecker, founder of the um, Paulist Paul. Fathers, uh, Card Card Cardinal the long, long surviving Cardinal Gibbons of, of Baltimore. Um, but um, amongst those who refuse to go along with it, obviously are going to be uh, popes. Indeed, will fall into that category, such as the, uh, the 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 glorious predecessor of Pius IX, Gregory the Sixteenth, Cardinal Lambruschini, Pius IX himself. After 1848, after he learned his lesson about the uh, about, about the revolutionaries and revolutionary uh, doctrine, uh, Saint Pius X, most of all, Dom Guillaume, Cardinal the Great Cardinal P. And, and and many others and many others, but so you're set up for, well, the the Concordat of 1801 set us up for Vatican II, didn't it? Set us up for the the so so-called conservative or traditionalist versus liberals, uh, and Archbishop Lefevre historically would fit very much into the camp of 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 the Catholics who refused to go along with the with with the revolution, but. If so many others could have promoted it for so long, despite the, the best efforts of St. Pius X, it's because of Pius VII. It's really, this is the legacy of the Concordat. Well, and your I want to come, I want to come back to tie, to tie this off at the end of our episode today, mm -hmm. but it's probably a good time for us to talk about the horrible ideas that were spread by the March yes. of Napoleon's extremely effective army so we'll we'll move from history to the intellectual life, and we're going to talk about the uh, the army of isms. 
Yes, isms. Um, uh, we, we are now in a world of isms. Uh, and um, what, what we want to do now, Stephen, is simply to, to define and discuss briefly and sort of an overview many of these isms that we've spoken about before and we will have occasion to speak about more in, the, in, in other shows. But uh, we just have to give just some definitions. And then this is time to, uh, as you would say, Stephen, to eat your spinach, or uh, as my teachers used to say, put on your thinking cap, because um, uh, we have to get into uh, philosophy and we have to get into horrible, ugly, modern philosophy. So, but we have to have at least some idea because you'll every now and again, stay with me here, because every now and again, the penny will drop you and say, oh, yes, I know uh, this or that example, because remember, ideas matter. The bad guys realize that ideas matter. We Catholics have to have to also realize that. Uh, the first thing we want to speak about is German, the modern German philosophy, with transcendentalism and uh, pantheism. This is this is all rooted in the philosophy of Immanuel Kant or Kantism, uh, which in return has its roots in. Nominalism. We've spoken about nominalism earlier. The great, the great influence it had upon Martin Luther, and uh, its unfortunate introduction into the into the Catholic world already in the in the in the Middle Ages. So Kant carried nominalism a little bit um, a little bit further and maintained that um, human knowledge consists only in in what he calls phenomena, a knowledge of appearances, and these things can be organized by our own mental categories. That's what you can know, um, just categories of the mind. Um, but you can't really, the idea always is the same. You, the, uh, the mind produces reality. There's no such thing as an out there objective reality. Uh, because if knowledge doesn't come from out there, it just comes from inside, from us, from ourselves. This leads to um, another ism, which is called idealism. This makes the ideal prevalent over the real. Kant's followers understood the consequences of all of this, and this becomes then what they call German transcendentalism. Some big German names like Schilling and Fichte, they go along with this. For another show, and for a more talented um, philosopher, would be a very interesting discussion of the um, Infiltration of the traditional movement, and particularly the Pius X Society, by uh, Kantism and uh, Fichte, uh, by means of um, uh, Father, the second superior general of the Pius X Society, Father Schmidberger, who was a trained uh, follower of Kant and Fichte, and somehow it was able to claim with a straight face, and I suppose still today does, uh, so do some German state of a contest that no, this is not in any way opposed to Catholicism, and this is the only valid philosophy. Go figure. But all this is going to lead to to it's important talk talk first about this. It will lead to so many other modern errors, evolutionism, modernism, Marxism, and uh, subjectivism, perhaps most of all. Our next ism to look at is um, a sort of a twofold evolutionism. If you. you even Protestants, Protestant conservatives, um, American speakers and ministers, have have realized the uh, the effect, uh, the the incredible and very very harmful deleterious effects of evolutionism in our world. There is um, 
an what we call an idealistic evolutionism, and then a materialistic evolutionism, continuing along with the ideas of of the subjectivism and Kant and the rest. Uh, we have uh, we have Hegel. Uh, he is very very important for understanding how the the what Bergoglio calls the Leo, the the mess, the chaos. The Novus Ordo Bishop of uh, Providence, Rhode Island, just said the other day, well, he says he he believes in the creation of chaos, and he's sure done a good job. That's interesting. But um, uh, Ratzinger, too, being a, being a good German, a good uh, modern philosopher, Ratzinger, too, is a follower of all this. We call it, we call it the Hegelian dialectic. It's, it sees all of reality in a constant flux. And the way you're going to get to something, this is, this is their modern idea, see it in practice in the conciliar church with Ratzinger establishing a high church movement, with Bergoglio seemingly reducing everything to fighting and bitter chaos, rioting in the streets almost. Uh, the idea is, is that of a, you have a start, you have a thesis, and then you have an, and so the thesis would be, say, the natural law, marriage lasts until death, or the, a marriage can only be between a man and a woman. And then that's opposed to the antithesis. Oh, no, there must be pastoral practice and mercy, and da, da, they love each other. They, they should be able to get married and be able to share the bread and wine at our, at our Eucharist every week. That's the antithesis. And then, oh, then there's, then there's a seeming world war or riot in the streets. What comes as a result of all of this? They believe, that's their reading of history based on their philosophy, you get a synthesis. That's what they're after. You get a new synod document. Yes. Well, you'll get yes. You'll get a one year from now, and it'll be quite different from what's going on now, because that's when Napoleon he sort of steps out of his sepulchre. At Les is it Les Invalides? Is that where he is? Yes. Yes. That, that, that's where he he reposes the poor soul. He's going to step out of his sepulchre. <laughs> he's going to step say, out of all six six coffins he's entombed in. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. One after another, and uh, he'll join he'll join all all the rest of these modern demons and say, "Yes, see, we have institutionalized." The revolution. Uh, this and uh, this this idea of we're just speaking about our isms so far. I, I want our readers to see, or our listeners rather, to, to 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 see, to think think through and realize the importance of ideas. Now, but there's also not to forget a material or materialistic uh, evolutionism, and of course, right away, one one to think of the Englishman Charles Darwin. Um, the uh, uh, and those those ideas, the ideas of evolution, evolutionary truth, and the philo their, their philosophical underpinnings have, are immensely important for understanding the modern world and the modern mentality. Uh, and of course, that's this is this is the, the one of the greatest and the most indisputable of doctrines, joining perhaps even global warming. I don't know, as as truths and the Holocaust as truths that are never ever to be questioned, much less to be denied. After evolutionism, then uh, we go to something maybe a little bit more general once again. You've heard the term. It's rationalism. Uh, since Kant glorifies human reason, there was a whole tendency in 18th century philosophy to make that um, applied to religion and to oppose it to supernatural revelation. That gives us the rationalists who deny the possibility of miracles and and any form of a true supernatural revelation at all. 
Uh, that, remember, that's a Masonic idea, too, because God is uh, the deistic God. He's out there. He doesn't really intervene in, in, in human events. We, we believe in a God, but not a God who's, who's part of history. And then there are also those who, there, always, there often will be in all of these isms, those who take a little bit more of a gradualistic um, approach. We have what's, what was known as the, the semi-rationalists, those who accept human, uh, excuse me, they accept Christian dogma, but maintain that everything could be explained by reason. Uh, Saint, or excuse me, Pope Leo XIII, in his condemnation of Americanism, would point that out as, as, as one of the evils of this school of thought, that uh, everything in um, Catholicism could be explained by, by human reason, and therefore was supremely reasonable, and, and Protestants should therefore join this new version of Catholicism. This is back in the, uh, in the 19th century. Um, then we have positivism, another ism. Uh, this is this extends. This is Auguste Comte, who it just extends the work of of, of Kant. Uh, now he's he, he dies in eighteen fourteen. Excuse me, eighteen forty two. So he um, he's taking us into the into the nineteenth century. He he denies the possibility of having any any form of metaphysics. He denies that there are any final causes. That there's any absolute at all. Um, that knowledge for him consists only in certain facts and the relation of one fact to another, and that theology is to be dismissed as just, well, that's just a primitive way of explaining natural events. Our next ism is pragmatism. Um, this is interesting because it touches a little bit, uh, Henry James said, uh, the American character and the American mentality. Um, this is a way of um, translating those those um, high ideals of of uh, idealism uh, into in, into the practical order. This is taking something very theoretical and trying to making it very very practical. What's that? Remember, that's the work of Napoleon. Um, idealism's basic principle is that the mind precedence over physical reality. You can see that in the America, the curious American sect, Christian Science. Uh, the 19th century, they were extremely popular because these philosophical ideas were well-received and extremely popular. The pragmatists said that um, the will to power is the principle of, of existence. Life is merely an instinct to obtain power. So pragmatism influences everybody from the founders of Christian Science with the phone in her coffin, uh, Mary Baker Eddy, Mary Eddie Baker, right, all the way to uh, the uh, the Ubermensch, the Superman, Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche. Uh, profound influence on German thought, and that leads you to Hitler, who was a great uh, admirer of Nietzsche. Uh, and as I said, there's an American connection to William James identifies uh, the truth with what works. If it works. It's got to be true. There's something sort of deeply American in that viewpoint, whereas um, for the French, it would simply dismiss it. Whether or not it works makes no difference at all, except it would be one, one more thing for the French to argue about. But uh, as, as long as it's an idea, then we can, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss it or we'll, we'll fight each other over it, whereas Americans would rather set aside all the ideas. Imagine we're going from idealism now to a seeming opposite to pragmatism. If it works, it must be good. Let's uh, let's accept it and try to uh, try to impose it as an answer. 
Next, um, ontologism. This is, uh, again, it's this idea of uh, idealism, um, which uh, touches theology to a certain degree. Being in general is now, just being, is now identified with divine being. Man uh, is born with an immediate knowledge of the divine. And this uh, knowledge is expressed by the word, by the verb, by the use of the verb to be. I admit when we talk about ontologism, Stephen, that we're getting a little complicated, but um, I, I want to mention it because it certainly is a, th- a philosophical movement of the uh, 19th century, very important, particularly because you have one of your Novus Ordo saints who was a famous ontologist, Antonio Rosmini, the founder of the Fathers of Charity, the Rosminian Fathers. His um, philosophy was condemned by the Church later on uh, under, I think, St. John Paul II, if I'm not mistaken. He was totally, that saint we're putting quotation marks, he was totally rehabilitated and... um, he was, this uh, Rosmini himself was proclaimed a saint of the Novus Ordo. So those are some of the, those are some of the philosophical trends and philosophical schools that affect us still today, that reach across the ocean to the New World, and um, which are sometimes in their, in their roots, uh, in the tendrils that they send out, the branches that they sprout, seemingly um, opposed to each other. But there you have it. That's, that's a little bit about modern thought. Well, then we can move on from modern philosophical thought to modern political and economic thought or theories. Uh, this takes us to a, a definition of the, of, of the word liberalism. You hear people describing themselves or describing each other as, as, as liberal. Um, what, what, what do we mean by that? So we're going to talk about the classic meaning and then the popular or received usage today. Liberalism is a, is a political theory, and it is an economic theory, too. Concerning politics, it applies these bad Enlightenment Masonic ideas that we've been speaking about in this series to politics and to religion. Um, liberalism is, uh, classic liberalism is very close to the modern uh, movement of libertarianism, which um, is, is, is pretty much out there today in, in many, many conservative circles. And it's interesting to see, to see what, what, what the links are here. It enshrines freedom libertarianism does, as does classical liberalism, as an end in itself. Uh, It holds that human beings ought to be free to do whatever they want to do as long as they don't cause any physical harm to someone else. I think you can say that's pretty much of a definition of what we call libertarianism today. And furthermore, that left to themselves in an atmosphere of perfect liberty, human beings will always manage somehow to choose the right thing, and that society will benefit as a result of this overall. Uh, Classic liberalism calls for freedom of the press, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, all of these freedoms that have been so eloquently and frequently condemned by the true Catholic popes, especially in the 19th century. Uh, One of their mottos is a free church in a free state, and they see the state 
uh, a state which is indifferent to religion, leaves religion alone almost entirely, as, as an ideal state. Um, that's uh, all of this is on on paper, but the reality is is that all of this is used as as a key and as a ploy, as as a as as a means of of of, of actually achieving exactly the opposite: the total subjection of people by a hypocritical uh, presentation of these so-called liberties. Well, that's uh, liberalism as a political theory. Liberalism now, from an economic point of view. Uh, holds that the very best form of um, economics is we've all heard that for that that, that French phrase laissez-faire. It's laissez-faire. I think that's the correct pronunciation. Let them do it. Literally means let them do it. Economy, in which the government doesn't intervene in any way at all, but permits everyone to find his way in some sort of economic free-for-all. Uh, the the centralized economies of many states under Socialism, national or international socialism, um, and even in, in, even in certain countries, uh, France in particular, uh, would would contradict this pure, this pure liberal or mm, we would say today libertarian uh, philosophy. From liberalism, we can move on to uh, its logical consequence, which is socialism. We we'll look at socialism in and of itself, and socialism as um, a national socialism, or socialism as an international socialism, and finally the movement of what we call internationalism itself. Socialism holds that the people are sovereign, and that uh, great dogma of the French Revolution, everybody is equal. All, citizens, all are equal as citizens, and that um, nothing can get in the way, this is important, between the state and the individual. So you have to have an all-powerful state, and then you have the individual standing before the state. There's no, there's no church. There are no rights. Uh, there isn't any, any. There are, there are no guilds. There are no customs, customary laws that are going to deflect the uh, the, the death ray of the state as the state surveys the individual citizen in the name of uh, equality. Interesting. Uh, this uh, all-powerful state makes laws then for every aspect of human life, and um, there's no other institution, not even the family, that has the right to make its own rules. And you see this in practical application of vaccinations to um, uh, homeschooling issues, uh, to, to religious issues. Uh, we'll probably see it in the, in the matter of gay marriage sometime fairly soon. So... The, 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 our first aspect about socialism is to consider that it, it leads to an all-powerful state. Not to we're not we're not looking so much about the the question of how the all-powerful state seizes and then redistributes uh, the wealth. No, that's that's secondary. The main thing is the all-powerful state, no intermediary between it, and it's it's uh, it's uh, not it's, we 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 say it's uh, it's um, citizens, but really we mean it's uh, subjects. Uh, national socialism is also known as um, uh, fascism. Uh, we we see it in um, we see it in, in the movements in Italy and in uh, and in Germany uh, the, uh, with Hitler and with Mussolini. Often, national socialism is confused with something good or something sort of conservative and for the old traditional values. 
but but actually they were socialists. So they were part of this revolution, and their main interest, however, as, as socialists, was not, as I say, the redistribution of the wealth or even the central control of the economy by the government. The main interest was the, the, the all-powerful state that would dictate, with no appeal, every aspect of of the life of the individual, whether it be economic or family, social, or religious, educational. That's national socialism. Then uh, we have to look at communism, which is, this is a, that, that, that distinction, by the way, I, I find very useful and it comes from Father Fahey. We have to look at communism and that gives us some international socialism. Uh, it's a form of socialism in its more radical form. Um, some forms of socialism, especially national, by no means require the abolition of private property, but only its control by the central government. Now, pure communism demands that all property and all means of production should be owned and controlled by the all-powerful state. So when we're talking about creeping socialism, that's where we're going with this. And well-known communists were, of course, Karl Marx and um, and Engels. The... Um, uh, then the connection that we will make later on between this and a militant anti-religious uh, atheism gives us the, the modern movement of communism today. Taking uh, libertarianism uh, uh, one step too far, you have the anarchist movement, which is very, very active in uh, in Europe and in the United States, in the, again, in the 19th century, uh, holding that all governments should be simply done away with and that human beings only need to enter into agreements with each other to conduct their business and to and to keep the peace. So that there's no use for any government at all, so that's carrying libertarianism to, to a particular ex extreme, anarchism. For the 19th century, we also have to uh, look at the movement of nationalism, which is still very much with us today. So all nationalism is, is I think, is a good example of filling the void, plugging the hole that is left uh, by the, the loss of Christendom, a, a, a Christian society. So you've got to worship something, and that something that you're going to worship is the state. Um, there's a healthy and a sane nationalism, but we would describe it as the virtue of patriotism, which comes under the natural virtue of uh, of, of piety the love for one's country, one's homeland, uh, where, one, where one is born. Whereas the nationalism of the 19th century in particular was uh, exaggerated. And as I say, it's, it's the result of the secularization of society. If you, When you take religion away, when you take the church away from the daily life of people, then what do people have left? They, they're, they're, they're just pure materialists. So they have to have some kind of an ideal, and that ideal, of course, is going to be the state. And so uh, demagog demagoguery is going to uh, make its appearance. The politicians will stir them up against others. You see a classic example of, of, of this kind of nationalism replacing religion after the so-called quiet revolution of the 1960s in Quebec, the French-speaking province of Canada, the it was Catholic and French-speaking, and during the era of the changes, went from being a Catholic, uh, very much of a Catholic country, if you will, uh, with a wonderful French heritage, to being um, absolutely secular and godless and and very, very nationalistic. Their religion now became the hatred of uh, the English. Uh, say what you want about the English, it seems a little exaggerated, and their, their hatred of the English language 
and English uh, English culture. So they wanted to promote their own culture and way of life, but without any religion. Religion was just sort of there in the background. Uh, well, the the, hate, the hatred of English by by the French is always humorous, given that that uh, English is what thirty five percent French influence, thanks to the Norman invasion. But uh, yes. You have to you have to not know history in order to hate uh, hate English uh, without uh, being French, I guess. Yeah. Oh, yes. I I think you can fairly say that most of the people that are going to be taken in by all these isms are people who really don't know history, and they they are easily they are easily stirred up. And but then but then, but then you one sees too that 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 human hunger the hunger of the heart of what's left of the soul for some sort of a religion replacement. And so the, the politicians are going to be there, and, and, and the church is gone. The church, the church is just caved before this, uh, this quiet revolution of secularism and materialism. And so what's left? Uh, the, the, the worship of the statism, the worship of, of the government is, is going to step in and then manipulate people for, for, their, own, for their own wicked, wicked purposes. And, of course, that, that prejudice was always there to be able to be profited from. <laughs> Uh, the opposite, an, another movement, also very popular in the 19th and 20th century, uh, which is still very much with us today, uh, and quite the opposite, again, is that of internationalism, which is associated with Freemasonry, most of all, and also with world Jewry and um, communism and socialism. Uh, there's two forms of socialism, really. And um, it consists in the call for nations to give up their national sovereignty. It's, it's the opposite. But somehow, these are both uh, roots, or these are both tendrils of that same, of the same work of the secret societies against, against uh, the natural or the Christian order. So states, states should give up their sovereignty in favor of an international socialist organization. After World War I came uh, the League of Nations, uh, which was not interested in hearing anything from the Pope and are giving the, the Pope a seat. And after uh, World War II came the United Nations, which received, uh, curiously enough, a blessing from the Pope, from Pope Pius XII, who hoped for the very best from this humanistic and natural nationalistic gathering, not seeing probably what its real roots were or its, or its real and its, and its true wickedness. So that's that's the movement of um, internationalism, and then we have um, last of all another word which is always bandied about democracy. This is the natural result of the ideas of the Enlightenment and of the French Revolution. The Masons and all of these terms you can see how 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 they're they're devoid of any not only any uh, uplifting theologically correct or um, spiritual truths but uh, they're, 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 they're words that are just used in order to be turned on their, their ends so as to promote the end of the glorification of the power of the state who's ever running the government. Democracy is, is possibly the, uh, the worst example of that at all. So that the Freemasons throughout Europe as a result of World War I established their, their, their democracies. Um, monarchies were reduced as a result of World War I to being mere uh, constitutional uh, monarchies, where the king or the queen is simply a figurehead. The real power is concentrated in the so-called democratic forms of government. But 
we would we we know from history that all of these things are at the best manipulated and at the worst just an external show. That these are always a question of a, of some form of an oligarchy, which manages to seize and to maintain control, using the terminology, the popular terminology of democracy. But the reality, uh, the reality, of course, is is not going to be there. So those are some, Stephen. Those are some political and some economic theories. If everybody is still awake, we have, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let me remind our listeners who are who are still with us, uh, uh-huh. trudging through some difficult difficult stuff for sure. Actually, but this is how you learn things. You you don't nothing worth knowing is is easily spoon fed. It's it's something that's going to take engagement and it's going to take some work. And yes. uh, for those who are listening, it's a reminder that root of the rot. Is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved. Any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. You may obtain permission by writing to mail, M-A-I-L, at truerestoration.org. How how does that work? Stephen, how does that work then for, as, as you're saying this, I'm going through all of these isms, I'm thinking to myself, probably someone who's serious about getting a grasp on all of this would want to to listen, not necessarily to this particular show, but to, to something on Restoration Radio more than once. How does that work if a listener wants to listen to it again and again? Well, if you if you purchase it, then you you get the you get the episode and you download and then it's it. yours, and you you can download it whenever you want to. You can listen to it. Uh, you can listen to all the isms as many times as you'd like. To. Excellent, excellent. Well, that's what I'm going to recommend as as, as a take home from this particular show, is you want to purchase it and you want to make it yours, and a little little contract here and do uh, does and listen to it again and again because the first time. And uh, it could be a little overwhelming, but you want to get these ideas in your head. You want to understand a little bit about Hegel and Kant, uh, because that's you know that's your father Schmidtberger and that's Ratzinger and Bergoglio. Wow, interesting. And then you want to hear a little bit about about the popes and the concordats and um, and uh, all of these isms. Be able to put them all in their in their proper place. So let's do some more isms, Stephen. Let's talk about theological. Isms. Um, we want to talk about uh, uh, liberal Catholicism and biblical rationalism. I was going to say now you're, you're swerving back into the red meat territory. So we've we've had all our vegetables and our salad. We've eaten our now, vegetables. Now we've I can. I, we have people who are who are uh, rubbing their hands. They can't wait to hear about uh, about theological stuff. So I'll, I'll let you. Excellent. You, you excellent. Deliver well, the state. They've they, they've earned their steak, and I hope they like it. Uh, I hope they like it singlong, <laughs> nice and bloody, because that's what we specialize in. Liberal Catholicism. You will be familiar with movement. Uh, simply as this, simply stated, the uh, the movement seeking to adapt the faith, Roman Catholicism, revealed religion to the principles of the French Revolution, which um, calls for a, a state which is indifferent. Towards religion, the ideal being a free, so-called a so-called free church and a free state, um, which would theoretically leave the Catholic Church free to function as it pleases, but in reality it leaves the Catholic Church far more chained than ever she was during the, the uh, during the Christian centuries, uh, which preceded the French Revolution. Um, we move from. Uh, that just a brief uh, dusting of liberal Catholicism, to rationalism, biblical rationalism. We talked about rationalism and semi-rationalism in a philosophical or a general sense. Now we want to uh, speak about um, this trend, which is a trend really towards impiety 
and and a refusal of 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 the, of the gift of faith, uh, which which leads to eventually followed faithfully will lead to a denial of all supernatural revelation, even the very possibility that there should be supernatural uh, revelation. Um, so uh, you got the, the the rationalists always have to be on the scene to demythologize, as they, that's their phrase, demythologize sacred scripture, whether it be the crossing of the Red Sea or Noah's Ark or whatever, whatever it might be, to give everything a rational explanation, every kind of a supernatural event. And Stephen, I just read the other day, and isn't this interesting, that yes, somebody came forward to demythologize Fatima and the miracle of the sun. How could the miracle of the sun have occurred? Because there were no, there were no, there, there's no scientific evidence of, of of anything like this. There were just all those hundreds of thousands of people that witnessed it. That was all. Well, uh, a certain Stanley Jackie, who was a Hungarian, a winner of the, I believe, the Nobel Peace Peace Prize. He was a Benedictine father and a great great scientist. I, I think considered so in, in his own right. He provided the world with a demythologizing of the miracle of the sun, if you can believe it, in, in which um, somehow he's got ethers and he's got weather movements and, and light and all of these explanations so that he's managed to cobble together so as to pass muster in the modern world. Because as we all know, everything must be demythologized. The idea that God, the maker of all, should actually work a simple, simple Miracle of the sun is it, it, that's that's not in their categories, and because it's not in their categories, they would not even consider it. So someone has even attempted to demythologize the um, the miracle of the sun of Fatima. Theosophy, or, or and, I, I, we've we've heard we've heard that on Francis Watch, uh, the idea that uh, for the feeding of the five thousand people, were just carrying their own bread. And our yes, Lord was and encouraging them to, to to share. Right? They shared it with each other. That's 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 one of the that's that's one of Bergoglio's few dips into the pool of of, of modern rational scriptural rationalism. Uh, and but, he, but that's one of the one, I guess maybe it's like you might say that's one of the things he remembered from his classes in the sixties, and he likes to repeat it. Um, theosophy and Spiritism. These were two very, very strong movements in the uh, 19th century, United States, England, very much so, but also in Europe. Um, kind of died out, and you don't hear that much about it, but uh, theosophy was uh, certainly still active in this country, even during the time of the changes you would hear about it. Theosophy um, is a system uh, which emerges from a fascination of uh, non-believers with the occult, a fascination with this idea of pantheism, that everything is God. This, this, the system of theosophy holds that man can directly um, have, a, have an understanding, a grasp of the divine essence. And this would only make sense because they are God or they're they're, they're part of God, and by means of theosophy and the system of what uh, the theosophists hold as a system of uh, teachers who come from another plane, uh, another astral plane, the ascended masters are referred to. You can have a knowledge of these the secret forces of the universe, and that will unleash great power in your life uh, and figure out how like, pyramids are going to sharpen your razor blades, things like that. Very useful in daily life. The theosophists... Um, are very much connected with the occult, and um, 
have an interesting connection with uh, of uh, liberal Catholicism, so-called liberal Catholicism, as a particular sect or movement, which is a uh, sort of a, a, a wedding of theosophical principles, which is just a lot of a lot of the occult, really, uh, with um, uh, with a, sort of a high church Anglican view view of worship. That was once a, a significant movement. They're still around today. Spiritism that has a link with. Um, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, known for Sherlock Holmes. There's a there's a Spiritist church right down the street from our church here in Westchester, Ohio, and they, they meet on Sundays to talk to the dead, to talk to the spirits of the dead. And if they're, it's either a, a sham or a fraud, or if it's successful, they're speaking to devils. And there's usually a devil or two at the switchboard more than happy to, to, to make the connection. That's, that's spiritism. Uh, that was a very important part of late 19th century um, uh, American religious movements. And as I say, it is still around today. Far more to our point would be a discussion of modernism. How do we define modernism? It's a system which desires to see the complete transformation of revealed religion, Roman Catholicism, according to the ideas of the age, of the times. Get with it. Modern times. It accepts the the philosophical conclusions of Kant and all the rationalists that it is impossible to prove anything in religion. You can't really prove the existence of God. It is impossible to hold that there actually was a supernatural revelation, but on the um, on the other hand, there are those who um, are known as immanentists, and they teach that God is identified with everybody's subconscious, and and that and that religion is merely this is a classic where we're here with classic modernism. Religion is just the outgrowth; it's just the expression of interior religious experience. So uh, religious experience, that's t- you think of Tyrell or Duchenne, Loisy, or Van Hugel. Um, it's, it's something purely subjective, and it's, it's, it's uh, personal to you, but at the same time, it's common to all of mankind. And um, it's, you, you, see how, you see how modernism steps out of the, the stagnant pool of German philosophy. Kant and 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 the whole idea of subjectivism is my personal experience. This finds its um, this finds um, uh, uh, an expression as well in um, the modern distinction between religion. Oh, I'm not religious anymore. I'm just, but I'm spiritual. You know, I'm a spiritual person. That this that 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 all is a flowering of of uh, of modernism. Um, old Catholicism. Now, old Catholic or old Catholicism, that's a contradictory term, if ever there was one. Those liberal Catholics who um, rejected uh, papal authority, and in particular really chafed at the idea of Pius IX, his boldness in calling an ecumenical council to define the, the always held Catholic teaching of papal infallibility. They, they couldn't, they wouldn't accept it. And so they, uh, some of them broke away, especially in German, German-speaking countries, founded a movement known as Old Catholicism, claiming that they were holding, well, what the, the Catholic Church had really taught all the way through. But really, it's what the Catholic Church um, uh, was subjected to during the era of the Enlightenment. Uh, Ignaz Dol- Dollinger um, 
is considered the, the founder of the old Catholic movement, although he didn't actually he didn't actually do that himself. Others did, but it uses his name. Amongst their positions are um, well, it's old Catholicism is is really yet another form of R and R, recognize and resist, isn't it? That is to say, they recognize the man as the Pope, but they resist him because, like the R and R people, they believe in freedom of thought in theological matters. We don't have to submit ourselves to the Roman Pontiff. Uh, they also promoted the. Um, uh, anticipated many of the changes, the marriage of the clergy, or the vernacular in, in worship, um, and uh, a classic modernistic approach towards, uh, towards theology. There are still so-called old Catholics around today uh, because of their free system of the consecration of bishops and the ordination of priests. They are at the source of, um, of, of, of many people who enjoy playing church and have was known as home churches. And so very often traditional Catholics might come across just by chance some sort of a chapel or church or an advertisement for a group that is, we would say, old Catholic. That is to say that it's somebody who's a plumber and then he wants to be a priest on the side. And he might pre- present himself as, as a traditional Catholic attempting to say the Latin Mass, or he might present himself as a modern Catholic uh, and he might not, might not even be he could be a she, uh, but that, those are all those are all some of the uh, the descendants of the of the old Catholic movement of of the nineteenth century. And we Catholics, simple without any etiquette in front of our name, we Catholics reject that entirely. And this whole sort of an old Catholic polity of just um, ordaining men, uh, right? That's that's growing more and more in the traditional movement. We'll probably have to do some sort of a show about that sooner or later, too. So, but I did want to mention it because when our listeners hear the, the phrase "old Catholic," some of them will think of it in, in those terms. Then there's the ecumenical movement, which starts with a movement of um, named after this ecumenism was originally known as reunionism. The um, idea of a reunion or a corporate reunion of the Church of England, especially the High Church part of the Church of England with uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And it was based upon an Anglican concept of the what's called the, the, the branch theory. The branch theory holds that the Church of Christ has three branches, the Anglicans, the, the, the Greek and Russian Orthodox, and the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, today, with subsist in and the whole Vatican II ecumenical theology, this has been superseded largely, but this is how it got, it's got its start. And uh, Lord Halifax and his discussions, his theological discussions, played a, played a great role in that. That's these, these are the forerunners of the ec- ecumenical movement. Very, very important, obviously, because so much happened in the name of ecumenism. Then uh, we, we spoke a little bit earlier today about Americanism. That is to say... Um, it's akin to uh, modernism, which holds that in order to make uh, converts, the the church should relax her rules, and um, indeed sort of reinterpret the um, reinterpret the the um, the very deposit of faith itself, and see and present everything in a way that's pleasing to non-Catholics, and supposedly just based upon reason and and common sense. The idea of man submitting his intellect before God, the Revealer, that would be that would be out the window. 
um, modern uh, Americanism also, of course, holds the um, that the so-called active virtues are much more important than the so-called passive ones, and that we need we need priests and teachers who are out there and in society and the idea of nuns behind a cloister grill or monks, trappists, uh, working and chanting in their monasteries, that would be, that's, that's passe, that, that, that's finished. So a lot of the uh, Americanism really gives us a lot of the ideas of applied modernism. Um, and it's uh, uh, American and at the same time French in its in its origin, these ideas were condemned by uh, Pope Leo the Thirteenth. Last but not least, if anyone is still out there, we could speak about uh, some trends in art, some trends in music, some trends in in, in literature. I guess this would cl- classify as the dessert. We've had our vegetables, and now we finish the steak course. Now, this maybe would be a little bit of dessert. Trouble is, a lot of people say, "No, thank you. <laughs> I've had enough." But um, well, if not, you but, can order the cheese, Your Excellency, because we're you in can place. always order the cheese. That's right. They will offer you that option, and maybe with a good red, uh, the meal looks interesting again, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, romanticism, but but it, this is important because. This romanticism is um, a musical uh, carrying out of the ideas of the Enlightenment, especially of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the denial of original sin, uh, that the most noble act that man is capable of performing is um, human feeling, sentiment. And this, uh, the, the uh, Rousseau's noble, noble contribution is that of the noble savage, that man, in his primitive instincts, is um, f- is far better and should be left alone and honored as such, instead of uh, chained up by the conventions of modern society. They, they would hold that. So romanticism holds that all of the interior instincts of man, his his sentiment, his feelings, all of that is necessarily good. So this is this again. This is rooted in the idea of uh, Immanuel Kant in his in his philosophy. It places subjective personal feeling over any kind of objective truth. Um, mind again makes makes for reality, um, and so its influence, the influence of romanticism over the arts would be to idealize everything to the point of falsification. So everything that should be sort of fantastic or exaggerated, whether it be literature with a kind of a new mythology of man, the deification of man, in effect, or whether it be music. Um, Human natural virtues are over-dramatized and 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 over-exalted. The, the the natural this world is supernaturalized, and, and that's all that really matters. Um, some modern fiction stands. Uh, Wuthering Heights is a good Ivanhoe. That might be another example. In, in music, the 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 common, the daily, the ordinary, that becomes exalted. Uh, Bishop Samuel says that Beethoven's sixth, I think Bishop Williamson probably would disagree, but that, but maybe not, Beethoven's sixth symphony um, would be an example of this uh, exaltation of the banal and, 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 and the lowly. Um, Schiller's Ode to Joy, memorialized in Beethoven's ninth symphony. Berlioz's uh, Symphony Fantastique would be, a, would be another example of that. 
Uh, that's a little bit about uh, romanticism in, in music, uh, feeling, sentiment. That's what, that's what you're going for. That's what you've got to feel good. So you can see how the connection between that and modern music and modern entertainment in general, or the modern so-called arts in general. Um, as regards um, art, you find, again, the idea of the, the glorification of the ordinary. That starts with the Dutch. That starts with the uh, the Northern European painters after the Reformation. They couldn't paint saints anymore, so uh, and, and Madonnas. So now they're going to paint uh, landscapes, and they're going to paint wealthy burghers and glorify the people who commission their paintings, glorify money and, and domestic scenes. Um, but then at the same time, there will be the glorification of the revolution itself, because that was the big theme during uh, during so much of the last two centuries. So we have Delacroix, his liberty at the barricades. Uh, he, Bergoglio would like him, because he portrays human liberty as, as big and messy, sort of. And, and, and But at the same time, Glorious, and this is what we should look look up to. This is what we should exalt. This is what we should view all of this as as noble. So, in these in the in the modern movement of romanticism, you have the idealization of false virtues, and of all the movements really of 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 the lower nature. That's eventually going to deliver you to the concept of the antihero, the cultivation of people's vices in literature and in art. And for this reason, uh, the modern movie star is glorified in, in the public eye, since uh, he's he's a, he's the source of he's done something so-called important, supposedly important on the screen in some dramatic or emotional sense, and um, he leaves a dramatic life off off the screen, and so therefore we should sort of abandon our lives to follow his very immoral life and be interested in it. And we eventually we end up with the glorification of all human vice as our chief as our chief means of entertainment. For romanticism, it's, it's, that's an important ism. It explains a lot about what's going on in music and art and literature in the modern world and today. Um, romanticism is linked uh, by means of Immanuel Kant and uh, idealism with uh, with uh, another movement in art called impressionism. This departs from the idea of representational art, classical and realistic. Um, now it's going to be the artist's personal or subjective impression, his impression of, of the forms. I remember Kant talking about all you can know are the forms. Um, that uh, the object of our knowledge, remember he claims, is not... Um, any real object as it object, object as it exists um, objectively out there, but it's just our personal impression of some object, how it seems or appears to us. So Monet, Manet, Renoir, all of all of the all of the great French nineteenth uh, century and twentieth century artists are uh, are are going to be in the school, and they're still today so highly appreciated, so highly exalted. In music, think of a Debussy, l'après-midi d'un fond, the uh, the afternoon of a fawn. Um, in in all these all these art forms, you see the continuation of this 19th century uh, phenomenon of the glorification of, at the very best, the ordinary, the daily, the uh, the French term for it, the banal, um, and at the very worst, it's going to lead you to the glorification of that which is horrible. And ugly and discordant, and and 
is going to leave you feeling worse rather than better. I think a good definition of, for me, a good definition of modern music is anything which, if you turn it off, is going to make you feel better. <laughs> and the definition of, of classical music, anything which is good, is that when you listen to it, it makes you feel better. It elevates you. It inspires you. Uh, but the modern music, you just want to turn it off. And modern art, you just want to turn away from it. I think Impressionism is, is sort of the artistic version of Vatican II. That is to say, there are all these cloud, vague, vaguely uh, nice uh, notions, and you should really appreciate them, but there's nothing there because it's, it's designed in a very subjective or personalistic sense and, and as a way of trying to appeal to everyone. Um, so it's like, it's like Oakland, Your Excellency. There's, there's no there there. There's no there there, exactly. I'm afraid so. A music. Well, uh, oh, go ahead. I, I wanted to say at this point, you know, you, some people might be shifting around in their chairs, you know, whispering to whoever they're listening to the the episode with. But I, but I, but I like Beethoven. But I, <laughs> I like I like Monet. Does, does, does His Excellency mean I, I'm not supposed to like Monet? Um, if we're talking about the root of the rot, are we are we discovering some rot in, in our in our love uh, of this music and our love of these uh, types of art? Absolutely. It would, it, 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 let's go. Let's let's be fair and go back uh, a little a little farther back in history, um, and uh, consider Mozart. What what good Catholic would not proclaim as totally and absolutely glorious the, the, the masses of Mozart? Yeah, Mozart was a Freemason. He was a member of a so-called Catholic lodge, but he was a Freemason. So you don't have to feel guilty for liking Mozart, and you don't have to feel guilty for liking Beethoven. But you should know how it went. You should know, literally, the root of the rot. And um, you should know, too, a little bit about uh, what, uh, particularly, say, Beethoven's Sixth Symphony or the Ode to Joy. You should know the effect that has on you and what he's really glorifying. And uh, as and you should know if the next time the, the Monet comes to your local museum and you you feel rather virtuous and highly cultural because you've gone in to see it and you're really appreciating it very much or you're you're making a pilgrimage not only to Saint Denis but also to Giverny, um, and to see the, see the wonderful gardens that inspired all this great impressionistic art. You should know. What it, you should put it into context, as we tried to contextualize earlier in this program, the uh, the concordats. So to put this into context, just understand that. No, it, it, in say, this is not to be condemned. There is much in say, in, a, in and of itself, which would have to be condemned. But see, we're on the slippery slope here, people. See where we're going with all of this. Put it into context. Uh, and then, because... The, the the point of, 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 of this series is to enable you to answer the question, how did it happen? Well Monet and 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 Beethoven have something to have something to contribute to the to the rot, just as much as Immanuel Kant or Napoleon or the or uh, the or the, or the great uh, Freemasons of the of the Enlightenment, the encyclopedists. That's all. That's all. So please don't feel guilty if you enjoy your Monet. So you're just saying uh, that the rot's just a little prettier, your excellency. Yes, the rot, the rot is. Yes, well, as a matter of fact, does it, yes, it, doesn't, I mean, it doesn't smell so bad. Doesn't there, there's no stench. It's rather pleasing. Those are pleasing pastels, and and stirring uh, Beethoven chords. Uh, but 
put it if you put it into context, actually you'll see it in a different sense from now on. And there should be at least one slight pause for an interior shutter, and maybe you might want to step back. You <laughs> might want to step back. Well, you know, it's it, 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 it's fascinating. You're, you know, you're actually thinking about what you're talking about. Just listening to those pieces, I'm I'm juxtaposing two in my mind, mm-hmm. both of which I was um, blessed to attend with some some clergy. I saw uh, Beethoven's Ninth. I've, I've seen that performed twice, and I've seen uh, Mozart's Misa in C minor. Mm-hmm. And the contrasting feelings, uh, don't get too deep into feelings, but the mm-hmm. sentiment mm-hmm. that's aroused when you're sitting, listening to a mass, and how you, you feel like you're floating up somewhere. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and listening to Beethoven, and I'm ready for someone to put a torch in my hand, and I'm going to go march in the street. Afterwards, yes, to the barricades. You know? Yes, exactly. Yes, I, yes. I, I'm ready. I mean, tell me whatever I'm supposed to be protesting. I'm ready after this music. And it's, it's, it, it, it's pedantry. I mean, it's telling you, the music is telling you what to do. It's just that, you know, now we have the, you know, they play records backwards and, you know, Pink Floyd is telling you to go burn a house down or something. And, mm-hmm. and that's demonic and everyone sees that that's evil. But, you, you know, if you're, if you're refined and you're sitting and you're in a suit and you're in a concert hall, and Beethoven exactly. tells, uh, well, it's okay then. <laughs> and, and isn't that, isn't that, ha- haven't you touched upon one of the really great themes of the, the, the challenge of being a Catholic? That is to say, if you've got some um, grungy, uh, long-haired hippie type who's preaching communism at you uh, or, or having a demonstration in the street, it's very easy to hold your nose and walk away and condemn them as quickly as possible. If you are sitting next to somebody who's well-scrubbed and well-dressed and you're in a concert hall, a rather rather beautiful concert hall, perhaps with gilding and crystal lights and chandeliers and everything, and they're, and they're doing some wonderful, so-called wonderful Catholic classical music, that's isn't that part isn't that what we're fighting for isn't this part of the great civilization of the west no this is part of the problem so it's a it's a it's a two-faceted problem pro minimo for the very least and our audience needs to be able to recognize that if you don't you'll be taken in uh, that's why the importance of considering the root of the rot so those who uh those who have money and who have power and who love beauty or some version thereof, are, are often going to hit upon things that will seem very appealing to us, whereas the, 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 real, the real ISIS revolutionary chopping off the kids' heads uh, will just reject it entirely and out of hand. But pause, step back, eat your spinach, uh, and, and, and think about the links here. And by all means, do think. That's uh, that's very important. See, as you were talking earlier about Beethoven, I thought to myself, two Bs here, Beethoven and, yes, Bergoglio, because the idea of wanting to run out to the barricades, right, get a torch, <laughs> and, and uh, that's, that's Bergoglio's much beloved concept of this Leo, the, the chaos. That's, that's what he wants. And it's an odd thing, isn't it, that uh, uh, soon after he uh, took over the Vatican, he... Um, uh, refused to attend a concert that had already been scheduled, and he made a big, of course, a big deal about his humility and was sitting and listening to classical music performed in the concert. That's for princes, and he, was, he wasn't a church prince. He was busy. He was busy while well, creating a little chaos someplace else. But that's modern music. That's Beethoven. You're right. You've got you've got your finger on it. That's what it's about. It's to move us towards this stuff, whereas. Uh, 
good music moves us in an entirely different direction. I think, I think of uh, Bach's Mass in B minor and the magnificent Kyrie, um, uh, how that just that lifts the soul up in this plea for mercy before, the, before God's throne. Entirely different, entirely different uh, feeling for it. I think well, directionally, Your Excellency, it moves us up, not forward. Not in yes. the direction of progress, right? Not, yeah, it's, and that's that's why that's why it has to be rejected out of hand as something just to, for of another age or for princes, I guess. But last but not least, uh, just a little bit word about uh, about the final utter degradation, which still appeals to the chichi to the modern wealthy classes, but. This is uh, where, fortunately, no traditional Catholics, no true Catholics are going to be deceived. Abstract art and uh, atonal music, uh, the, this movement of Impressionism we've been discussing last of all, was just the beginning of this radical departure from objectivity, from objective truth. The principle that the mind dominates reality and is itself the source of reality, so this idea of, of, of Immanuel Kant and all the subjectivists, um, find, it's, going to find its, uh, it's going to find its ultimate expression in art and in music. So the artist portrays his subject uh, in some grotesque form. That's Bishop Sanborn's phrase, and that's perfectly true. It's, and that's, that's modern art, isn't it? Some grotesque form that you're meant to ooh and ah over and pay perhaps thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to possess, say, a Picasso or, or a Jackson Pollock. Um, um, this type of painting ref- refuses the nature's, nature, such as God created it, and it refuses the whole idea of, of nature as somehow a reflection of Almighty God. Um, man tries to make his own nature, his fallen nature, his confused, wretched, ugly, dark, and sinful nature, kind of a counter-nature that's to be held up and admired. And so all of the principles of, of order of the, the, that, that have to be found in any form of real art, harmony, balance, proportion, that's all scoffed at. And it's replaced with this whole new set of principles in all the forms of modern art, including literature, uh, disorder, discord, imbalance, disproportion. So you see it. You, uh, so you see you see it then in the arts, uh, an, an actual representation of these awful philosophical ideas, just as you see in a modern Novus Ordo service, a modern Novus Ordo church, the exaltation of what the banal at the very best, the ugly, the offensive, the aggressively uh, revolting, right in your face, because that's the philosophy. The theology now it's now you're going to see its its actual expression in representational art or music or or writing. Same thing is going to be it's this diabolic love of the ugly for being ugly, and other people are supposed to really ooh and ah over it. And the same thing, of course, last of all, will be in, in music. You've got uh, Arnold Schoenberg or Stravinsky. This uh, the development of uh, of the atonal music. The classical uh, and the eight-tone scale is, is now discarded for a discordant um, 12-tone scale, which could vary with, with each piece very, very subjectively. Uh, the, the whole classical metric system is, is altered. Everything has to be offbeat, out of proportion, imbalanced. Everything else the Noah sort of loves to have everything off-balance in their sanctuaries, in their ceremonies. There's a reason for that. <laughs> 
Well, it's as you're as you're speaking about your ex, I'm I'm uh, I'm laughing because whenever so you know in my youth, you know about five minutes ago, I would go to some of these modern uh, exhibits or I'd listen to modern classical music, and I and I always asking myself, am I do I not get it? You know, am I not getting it? Over time, I've come to realize that that modern art needs commentary because it, it it's so horrible. Uh, it's yeah. these, these these emperors' new clothes, right? Well, you need commentary. It's sort of like the Novus Ordo needed comment, commenters because they need to explain to you how terrible their service was. <laughs> and so all these people are wandering around these modern art galleries and they're looking at a Rothko, which is this black rectangle. Yes. Yes. And we're and we're I'm looking at it. I, I look to I look to my left and to my right at other people who are looking at it. I'm thinking to myself, you know, people are trying they're trying to make people feel like they're dumb. Like they don't get it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh well you yeah. don't get it. Right. And, and, yeah. and 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 I, a hallmark of modern art is you need an explanation. And, and I suppose that's the beauty of Catholicism, Your Excellency, is it's the art of the obvious. Yes. Um, it, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't require a whole lot of explanation. I, I just read something from a, a very interesting piece uh, from uh, a Novus Ordo, Novus Ordo Dominican, in which he was attempting to maintain the, uh, some sort of a distinction like the, the old mass and the old way that would require all this explanation. Whereas you see in the, in the new way, everything is very simple and, uh, and, and the people can grasp it immediately without any sort of a commentary. Whereas it's exactly the truth, as often the case, is exactly the opposite. Uh, a man off the street, including, and this says a lot, a modern man off the street can come into one of our masses, whether it be a silent low mass on a weekday or whether it be a gorgeous pontifical mass on a feast, and immediately perceive what's going on and derive all sorts of benefit from it, and and despite himself, be drawn into it in some sense. If he shows even just a little bit of willingness on his part, uh, that's our experience in weddings and funerals and Christmas. And people will always be saying things because they're touched by it. They don't need anybody explaining anything. It's all obvious. It's it's elaborate layers of ceremonial music. It's true, but it's um, uh, it's it's uh, open to everybody for 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 his understanding without any without without any fuss. Whereas your Novus Ordo, that has to be explained, and that's why the Novus Ordo ministers are always explaining this and explaining that because they they've stepped away from the natural in their abhorrence of the supernatural, and so they have to always be explaining to people talk 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 about what what, what they're attempting to accomplish. As you say, at a modern museum, looking at some. Uh, canvas is painted black, and someone will have to explain to you its glories and why you should pay so much money for it. Uh, the emperor's new clothes. Well, you're well actually, I suppose the emperor's new clothes uh, is a good place for us to end. We started with Emperor so. Napoleon uh, yes, today, yes. so we'll, we'll yes. end with with his false clothes that he's uh, spread out all over Europe and consequently all over the world. Um, mm-hmm. As always, your excellency, thanks so much for your time. What's uh, what's going on at Saint Gertrude's these days? At St. Gertrude, we are getting ready for our 40 hours devotion, which opens uh, Friday night, the 24th, and uh, continues through Sunday night, the 26th. Uh, we're one of probably one of the few churches in the world which has, for over 30 years consecutively, each year performed this traditional Catholic devotion of the solemn masses, the adoration of the Blessed Sacrament for 40 hours, and the the processions. So that's for us. That's a very very important part of our life. And then that, of course, will lead into All Saints and All Souls. Uh, the uh, 
Holy Day Masses, the, the double Vespers, the Vespers of, this, this year will be the Vespers of the Sunday that lead into the Vespers of the Dead, and then the opening of the, of, of the observance of all souls on Monday, November 3rd, with the possibility of the faithful gaining the, as often, so often, indulgence known as the Totsies Quotsies, as long as, and I point, hasten to point this out since you have given me an opening, as long as they pray according to the mind of the Church. The Pope's intentions simply mean the exaltation of, of the Catholic faith, the propagation of the faith, uh, the suppression of heresy, and peace and concord amongst uh, Christian princes, and in general, the, the, the needs of the Church. That's, that's what that phrase means, and when you say you're our, our fathers, six our fathers, hail Marys, and glory bees, that's what you're praying for. And each time you visit a church from, well, this year it's noon on Sunday, the uh, the second through midnight on Monday the third, you may gain a plenary indulgence under the usual the other usual conditions as well, of course, for the poor souls in purgatory, and they certainly do need our assistance. And you're reminding people, your Excellency, that you don't have to have a pope uh, in in position in order to take advantage of this indulgence. Absolutely not. That 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 must be one of the ten the ten most popular uh, false notions or misunderstandings amongst traditional Catholics today. But no, not not required at all. Not part of the system, no. All right. Good. Well, Your your Excellency, as always, thanks so much for your time. We look forward to having you on uh, on our next episode where we'll talk uh, about some more rot. More rot, and next time we want to talk about the, the, the fire that Freemasonry set uh, throughout the whole world and some of the great conflagrations, uh, the, 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 pra- the practical modern results of Freemasonic and Enlightenment thinking. Thanks so much for your time, Eric. You're very welcome. God bless you. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found our work, um, this episode, to be informative, helpful, in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. If you have any questions for His Excellency on this episode or any of the past episodes, you can write to him at root of the rot at truerestoration.org. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a rosary, a mass, or, or even an ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I'm Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. 
That's novusordowatch.org.